It is not an infrequent occurrence that uh, I am called to preach on something that I don't want to, uh, but I am compelled to do so because it's obvious in the scriptures that this topic, this or that, needs to be preached on. So when I'm preaching on something like today, humility, I would really like for you to have the disposition that I'm struggling with the same things that you are, lest you think I'm telling all of you to be humble because obviously I already am, which would, which even if that's true, if I thought that would mean that I'm not. So it, it's kind of, a, kind of a, a, a double bind there. Okay, so clearly the, the readings today point us to be humble, but to be humble, we also need to know what it means to be prideful. We need to know the, the opposite, right? Um, what's interesting about the sin of pride, a number of things that are interesting about it. Number one, um, it is one of the least confessed sins. So over, over 19 years of hearing confessions, it rarely gets confessed. Which either means we're the most humble society in the history of the world, or people maybe are not sure what it is, or perhaps are not sure when they're falling into it, when they're committing the actual sin of pride. Really, every sin is a sin of pride. So what is pride? From whence does it come? What are some examples of the sin of pride? Well, number one, pride is probably the worst sin that can be committed. It's probably the worst sin. The, the, the great saints, the great moralists talk about the difference between sins of our higher nature and sins of our lower nature. Sins that are of our higher nature are of a spiritual, um, a spiritual variant, whereas sins of our lower nature are, are more of, a, of an earthly or a physical uh, variant, if you will. So many people will confess sins against the Sixth Commandment as though they're the worst sins, and they're not. They're not by a long shot. The sins that are of a purely spiritual nature, pride, envy, are much worse because they come straight from hell. The sin of Satan is the sin of pride. We don't know a lot about how the angels that fell, fell, but we do know enough from divine revelation that that's sort of what happened. That there were some angels in the first act of their existence acted against God, right? They rebelled against God. And what seems to be clear from Revelation is that Satan, who was an angel, tried to grasp for himself what was God's. He wanted to be like God. Now remember that Satan is not God's equivalent just on on the bad side. Satan is Michael's equivalent on the bad side. There is no power that is equivalent to God. Right? We don't believe in a dualism, good and evil, equal powers in the universe. There is God who has all of the power and then there's everything else. So Michael, whose name means, it's, it's kind of a question exclamation, whose name means who is like God, right? Because Michael is the great adversary of Satan who wanted to be like God. So Michael himself in his existence, who is like God? No one is like God. 
And it is Michael who throws Satan ultimately out of heaven. This great battle. Now, when Adam and Eve were created, you know, we look at the, we look at the Genesis account. And the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of allegorical. They're not meant to be taken literally. Everybody has understood this uh, since the beginning of, well, not everybody, but, but, you know, we have as Catholics, since the beginning of Christianity, we understand that the Genesis account is, tells us truth about how we were created and how the universe was created, but it's, it's couched in sort of allegory or a sort of myth, but it still conveys truth, all right? And one of the things that it conveys is how Adam and Eve sinned and, and the repercussions for that sin, which were, of course, great, original sin, etc. What, what made their sin so reprehensible was not that they ate from the wrong tree. You were told not to eat from that tree, you ate from the tree. Now sin, evil, death, etc. comes into the world. That sounds to us ridiculous because, of course, it would be ridiculous if it were just about fruit from a tree. But it's allegorical. It means more than that. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to commit the same sin that he committed. No, we can't eat of the fruit of this tree because then we will die. And Satan says, well, you surely won't die. And what he said was true and false, which is typical of a temptation. There's some truth in it, but there's a whole lot that's false. What was true is they would not immediately die. But what was false was that they wouldn't ever die because death would come into existence through their disobedience. Satan tempted them to eat the fruit because if by doing so, he said, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That was the temptation. The temptation was to pride. The temptation was one of envy and pride, which are tremendous sins that Adam and Eve thought that they could seize for themselves what was God's alone, knowing good from evil. They were tempted to make themselves equal to God. This is, in fact, a serious sin, especially for two beings who did not have original sin, who did not have a a darkened intellect and a weakened will. So when we look at what pride is, it's essentially putting ourselves at the center as opposed to God at the center, or putting ourselves at the center as opposed to everybody else at the center. It's thinking of ourselves first. I need to be thought of first. My needs have to come first. My good has to come first over everyone else's. It's making ourselves the most important person in the room. And so with the, with the gospel, right, you've got this dinner, these people are invited to the dinner, and they're obviously trying to sit in certain seats, right? Because Jesus makes a comment, you know, when you go to a dinner party, don't put yourself in the best seat because somebody better might come or more important might come, and then you get bounced, and that's really embarrassing. Clearly, as he's sitting down at this leading Pharisee's table, people are jostling for position, right? They want to get close to Jesus. They want to get close to this really, really important Pharisee religious leader, 
And the reason you do so is because of probably a couple things. Number one, well, I'm so important, I need to sit next to Jesus. Don't you know who I am? I know the Pharisee guy. I get to sit close to him. Or they're sitting close because they want to influence. You know, my needs need to influence Jesus or this religious figure. When we begin to peel away our motivations for doing what we do, we, we can very often find, unfortunately, vice. And we can very often find pride. I'm so important that I need to do this. I'm so important. Don't you realize how important I am? It's amazing. Okay, I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's just true. Um, it's amazing how many times people say that to their priest. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how important I am? It's amazing. And I, you know, I think, well, okay, you know, no, I don't. I'm new. I don't know anybody. I know like three names. I don't know anybody. But in a way, everybody to me is just as important as everyone else. But it's interesting because we have this interior need to, to be validated, to, to be seen as important. And sometimes it comes from a bad place. Sometimes it comes from a bad place. So what is humility? A good definition here, which I, I tried to find the attribution, and it, it's all over the place. But, but it is attributed to C.S. Lewis, who's my favorite author, so I'll give it to him. Humility is not thinking less of oneself. It's thinking of oneself less often. Humility is not a person who says, oh, I'm no good. I'm no good at all. That's, that's shame. And that's not a virtue. Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is, is not a person who denies the gifts that they have. That's not humility. It's actually just unhealthy. Having a strong self-esteem is a good. It's a good, and it's good to build that up in our children and within others. Humility doesn't say, I'm no good. Humility doesn't even consider the question because the person is thinking about someone else. That's the difference between thinking less of oneself and thinking of oneself less often is that a truly humble person just isn't thinking about himself. He's thinking about everyone else whose, whose needs need to be met. A husband is thinking of his wife, not primarily of himself, and vice versa. Trying to secure the other person's need and the other person's good. Let me tell you a story that happened this week. It's a beautiful story. You weren't there, so I don't know if I can convey it, but it was beautiful. So I, I had a call for an anointing, and uh, uh, she wasn't a parishioner. She was from a different parish, but, you know, she's in our, our boundaries, so I, I went to anoint her. And um, uh, she had just received a cancer diagnosis. Um, she was terminal. And uh, so the family called and said, Father, could you get here ASAP? So I went. And I walked in the room. She didn't know who I was because she's not a parishioner, right? She didn't know who I was, but she saw the, you know, the sin-fighting suit, 
And uh, she saw the collar, and um, in her eye, and she was fully, you know, she was fully uh, aware. And her eyes just opened, and she had this huge smile. And she grabbed my hands. Oh, Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. And I had to get her to stop focusing on me so that I could focus on her. It was an, I, I left thinking how beautiful this was because here is this woman in incredible need. And all she could think about was me. And, you know, I'm like, hey, I got to do my job, you know. But she, she was so focused on me and making me feel loved that I had to kind of work beyond that to, to get her anointed. And it was beautiful. She had some friends there. It was really beautiful. And I left just thinking, wow, this is, this is great stuff I get to do. We found out later that uh, just in the, within the next day, she, she in fact died. And I thought, but how beautiful. This woman, in her time of need, wasn't really thinking about herself. She was thinking about other people. She was thinking about goodness and blessing. It was a great example of humility. You know, oftentimes uh, we look at those moments of pain and suffering as, as things to be avoided as worthless. And no doubt we shouldn't run for it. We shouldn't try to find suffering. We shouldn't aspire to suffer more. But what suffering often does is it, it uncovers sort of our true nature. One of the things that we can do to evaluate how humble or not we are is when we're really in need and we're really suffering, how do we react? Do we react as though I need, I need, I need, and we demand? Or do we have more of a disposition of, I do need, please help me. Right? There's a different disposition there. One who demands and one who asks meekly and seeks to receive assistance. Our suffering tells us so much about ourselves. It's actually such a great gift. We never see it in the moment. And of course, it would be odd to perhaps sometimes see it in the moment. But oftentimes, you know, hindsight being 2020, we look back at those moments and we see how much God was at work. And one of the great things about suffering is that it often brings out our humility because it brings out how much we need and how much we lack. Growing in humility is difficult because as soon as a person becomes aware that they're becoming more humble, hey, I think I'm becoming more humble. <laughs> it's right? It's obvious. It's precisely the moment that they're probably not. So how do you know if you're growing more in humility? It's difficult. Perhaps it, it doesn't, uh, you know, some, sometimes certain virtues you can kind of go after directly, like courage. You know, one of the, the moral virtue of courage is something you can just kind of go right after directly and, and work on. The theo and that's a, that's a cardinal virtue, but the theological virtues are a little, are a little different because they, they come from God and then they, they move us toward God. 
faith, hope, and love, of course. And humility, which comes forth from that, is a part of those theological virtues. It comes from God and ends in God. And so perhaps a direct focus on humility isn't good, but rather some qualities that a humble person has. In other words, you don't set out the day saying, I'm going to be humble today. But perhaps a person sets out that day and says, you know, I'm going to focus on myself less. I'm going to focus on my wife today. I'm going to focus on my husband today without becoming bitter, or my children today without becoming bitter, or my co-workers, whoever it is. I'm going to focus more on the other as opposed to myself. And then allow God's grace to change me and form me into who he desires for me to be. I think that's how we might be able to grow in humility without getting trapped in sort of evaluating ourselves along the way. Humility and charity being so intertwined that when we're more charitable toward others, we also, of course, we become more charitable, but we also become more humble because we're focused on somebody other than ourselves. Ultimately, as with all these things, we're trying to become the people Jesus wants us to be. God wants us to become certain types of people. He wants us to be loving, right? He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be a lot of things. But there's no room for anyone in heaven who is not humble. And so we need to become humble so that we can enjoy our eternal destiny with him. Please stand.